0: Prior to this episode commencing, I want to acknowledge the sacrifice of Peter Forsythe of the New South Wales Police Service. This episode of Protect and Serve is as much about Peter as it is Jason. Sadly, Peter isn't with us to be able to tell this story. This memory is lived through his colleague and friend Jason, who was with him on the night he was killed whilst doing what he swore to do protecting the communities of New South Wales and looking out for his colleagues. Peter paid the ultimate sacrifice, leaving behind a loving wife and two beautiful children who he would sadly never get to grow up with. By telling this story, we keep Peter's memory alive and we acknowledge his bravery and sacrifice which will never be forgotten. Rest in peace, Peter Forsyth. We also wish to acknowledge Glenn McInerney of the New South Wales Police Service. A close friend and colleague of Jason's who is mentioned in this episode. Glenn was tragically killed a few years after Jason and Peter were stabbed in Sydney. He was responding to a serious incident while stationed at Highway Patrol. Glenn was tragically shot and died as a result of his injuries. We wish to acknowledge Glenn's bravery and sacrifice again protecting the people of New South Wales. Rest in peace, Glenn McInerney. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve.
1: came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended.
0: Jason Semple's policing career has taken him from the streets of Sydney, New South Wales to the dusty and hot streets of Iraq in the Middle East. He has overcome significant challenges and intercepted and arrested some of the most dangerous villains on the streets of New South Wales in the advanced and highly skilled Tactical Operations Unit. He has had a truly incredible policing career. However, all of this may not have been possible if it wasn't for the incredible work of medical teams who treated him on the evening of the 27th of February 1998. This was after he was brutally stabbed by a drug dealer whilst walking home after a drink with colleagues. Jason lay on the footpath, bleeding to death. His colleague, Peter Forsyth, laying on top of him, tragically already deceased from his injuries. This is a story of heroism, resilience, calm and sadness. Jason takes us through his career in law enforcement reflecting in detail the events that would change his life forever on the night of the 27th of February 1998. All this and much more next on Protect and Serve. Well welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve and again as I say it's another week and another fantastic guest You know, we travel all around the world. We do spend a lot of time in the United Kingdom. There's no doubt about that. And it's very important for me to head back to my policing roots in Australia because I am ever grateful for the person that I have turned into. My policing time in Australia gave me the skills and and the capabilities really to project me into the world that I now find myself in the private sector. But equally, there are many colleagues like me who have had an incredible career in Australian policing. And we've spoken to detectives, we've spoken to patrol officers, but today we're going to be spending a bit of time talking at the more tactical level and where that career has has taken my next guest in terms of the fascinating career he's had. But equally with all of our careers, there's highs and there are lows, and there are no greater lows than losing that of colleagues who you know both personally and professionally, and we're going to touch on that subject as well. But um, without further ado, I want to welcome Jason Semple to the podcast. Jason, good afternoon, good morning, and good evening. How are you? Welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thanks, Ollie. Thanks for having me on. Um, Love your podcast, and um, yeah, it's it's a real honour to be here sharing some uh, stories.
0: No, 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 no. Thank you ever so much for coming on. It's absolutely brilliant. And, you know, you've heard a couple of my... My episodes that I've done previously, and as I say, like every great detective, we wind back that clock in your career, and we start right at the beginning with a very simple question of why policing.
1: Oh, yeah, it's a it's a pretty easy one to answer, actually. Um, I think for me, it was sort of in my genetics from way back when I was a kid. You know, um, I had a really uh, my my pop was pretty much my father figure. He was this huge, larger than life. Um, you know, union boss in Australia, back when unions probably had a lot more relevance. Um, you know, so he was hanging around with, you know, he was having meetings with prime ministers and, and you know, at that level, and all the way through down to, you know, the, the everyday workers. He was a tough, intelligent, um, fair, just this amazing fella um, who, I suppose, my brother, who was a detective in, um, in New South Wales Police as well, We we just did everything known to man to try and impress this this um, larger than life character, Um, and I think from an early stage he used to tell me stories that um, even when I was like you know seven or eight years old you know and it was one of the kids was maybe uh, picking on an older kid he he was always he always had a bit of a chuckle to himself because I would always step in and I would be like hey (laughs) you know and even if a kid was twice my size I actually never really um, cared. You know, it was like, so I think it's sort of um, in my fabric to bully the bully, if that's a a way to sort of um, describe it. Um, I just, I always hated seeing someone who wasn't as confident as what I was, or wasn't as capable, and not saying I was overly capable, but maybe I was a little bit more capable than the average human. Um, And I just, even to this day, mate, um, I'm, I'm no, for not longer in any organization where I've got a badge and a gun, um, you know. but I have still hold the same levels of, if I see something, I'll go and um, get involved. I don't stand and watch like a lot of society does now. You won't see me pulling out the mobile phone and videoing something, I will step in. Um, so yeah, I, I, which obviously is, it's a natural progression to either, you're going into the military or you're going to the police, um, yeah, so um, that's where I found myself. It helped having my brother as a um, detective in Redphone at the time, you know, so I bounced off him. Which one am I gonna do? Do I go through officer training in the military or do I do, you know, go down the same um, pathway as him? Um, and it basically back then, it was like, um, you know, 96, 97, um, you know, there wasn't a great deal going on with the military. Obviously, that changed dramatically, even two, or two or three years later. Um, but um, yeah, I just I chose law enforcement, and it's in my blood, just like you, mate.
0: I want to just give this. This is a, a strange place to move on to, but I want to give our listeners a bit of context as 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 you as a, as an individual in terms of um, your stature and your size, because. You're a relatively big chap in terms of how would you describe your height and your proportion because that kind of blends into where we're going to move into this sort of tactical world. How, <laughs> how would you describe? How would you describe yourself?
1: Well, I'm six foot five and 114 kilos. <laughs> um, you know, and I keep myself fit. Um, it's funny because I was just over in the US um, at a like a military trade show earlier this year, and I was with um, Swedish and Norwegian special forces. And the norwegian guys are going hey we've got our australian viking here because obviously i'm 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 running a quite a substantial beard these days um so yeah that's me
0: (laughs) so um so so you so you walk into the academy 1997 here you are this um 185 centimeter young man ready to take on the world what was the experience like you know we talk every week about the vocation of policing being yeah. a complex one it's no different in australia you know there's policy procedure legislation to be able to regurgitate yeah. you know the operational the operational uh, training and the safety tactics and accoutrements that are issued to australian police officers is quite extensive in terms of uh, the ability of the use of firearms there wouldn't have been taser back in 1997 but obviously driving cars as well how was that experience for you both from the physical perspective and also the theoretical side of things
1: yeah, um, as you'd know, it's it's you know Australia is very much mirrored off the UK. Um, we have very high standards of um, police training and expe- expectations on us. Um, you, you know, so from a law enforcement perspective, Australia and the UK are pretty much talking. We're, we're very 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 similar. Um, you know, in terms of turning up to the academy, um, I really had no firearms experience at all. Um, and then, you know, all of the defensive tactics, same, you know, obviously it had my fair share of punch ups, you know, in my youth, um, I wasn't shy to, um, get in a scrap, whether it was during sport or it's wherever the, um, scenario was, so I wasn't sort of foreign to, you know, that type of activity, but, um, putting it into the more deliberate context in a legal framework, um, I found, I really, I I loved it. and as you know, there's the, you know, and, and, and any of your um, law enforcement listeners know, um, it, there really is a substantial amount of, um, you know, study and effort going into understanding laws, procedures, and, and how they're implemented and, and, and put into practice. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's it's definitely not a case where, um, you know, cops are turning up on the street um, with a bare minimum. It really is word for word. Um, letter for letter, you know, when going through crimes acts and what your powers are, it's um, yeah, it's considerable. And I really enjoyed the study aspect of it. Um, physically, it was good in those days. There was still a lot of physical requirement on police going through the system. Um, uh, uh, obviously, it's an issue in their current times where that's been watered down uh, considerably. But, um, yeah, I uh, yeah, I found the whole process at the Police Academy to be... Um, it, was, it went really quickly. You know, it's a six-month pro- program back in those days, um, which was supplemented probably 12 months after I, I graduated from the academy. They introduced a university scheme. So, you know, I found myself doing university for two years through the um, New South Wales Police, which I, I, I applaud. I, the more education and the more understanding, you know, people have, the better. Um, as long as it's sort of supplemented with all the the, ha- the hard skills um, that we, we need to keep ourselves and the public safe.
0: So you, you had already a brother who was you know is in plain clothes at the time in Redfern um, which for our listeners to give them context is one of the more challenging suburbs in Sydney to police historically there's been a number of issues there but in relation to you know the relationships between police and the community did you you know in, so your parents would have been incredibly proud the day you graduated from police where were you sent off to on graduation and, and how was those first sort of weeks and months of experience on the road
1: yeah um i got stationed initially at a at a, a station called Annandale um which is it's it's kind of it's it's about it's only a few kilometers out of um, sydney cbd um but it's it is um still suburbia so it's um you know you 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 2 seconds drive from being right amongst all the skyscrapers in the city but you um you're still in the suburbia it was a fantastic place it's like a 100 year old Um, you know, if you look at it, it looked like a, it was pretty much a, um, like a large, um, I'm trying to think of the era it would have come out of. It looked, for all intents and purposes, probably a house now. Um, so the, it wasn't some monolithic police building that you see around these days. It was nestled in the edge or the corner of a regular suburban street, just up the road from one of the local pubs. So. We, mm-hmm. we we were really embedded into the community in those days with the, how they ran, um, ran policing. Um, yeah, and it was a it was a fantastic um, group of people I worked with, and as as, as with yourself and everyone, it, the, those first few years in law enforcement are um, you know just an eye opener, and every day is just like wow, I cannot believe I just got involved in that. Or so it was. I, it was so, it was so exciting. I, I hated finished hated finishing shifts even though we were in Australia we're doing 12 hour shifts at the time I still hated yeah. I still hated the thought of my shift finishing you know so that gives you any indication how much I was enjoying myself
0: so in terms of you know we often don't realize or don't understand how we're going to react to both confrontation which is probably the biggest one in terms of dealing with incidents that we've never come across before pub fights you know you said you'd had scraps so you kind of used that world to a sense and were prepared to go hands-on how did you find that leaving the academy of all these accoutrements and these abilities and an increased level of communication skills like for instance going to your first decent sort of public disorder matter and and laying hands on someone and placing someone under arrest what was that sort of was there any sort of anxieties around that or you were pretty excited to get stuck in
1: yeah i have to I, i have to admit i was actually pretty excited to get stuck in um of course um you know any any man or or a female that walks this planet and says they don't have um, fear at times is lying straight through their teeth. Um, you know, there's a few times where it's like, wow, I don't know how this is going to go. Um, but on the whole, I enjoyed like a you know get, taking back to my earlier comment about you know if, if being involved in and in helping people that have been that are potentially being harassed or assaulted by people that they have. Have not got the capability to deal with. I, I I really enjoyed it. You know whether it was a domestic, you know, where you've, you're 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 getting involved there, or whether it's a, a brawl or whatever. You know, I was excited to be there, and um, I don't. I never really felt at any stage that I wasn't going to be in a position to be, um, you know, come out in front as well. So. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I suppose I,
0: I enjoyed it. Fairly soon after graduating, within 12 months, you were faced with probably one of the greatest challenges I think any police officer can face, and that is um, uh, dealing with a matter off duty, I think, in the first instance. Well, you actually, may or may not have been off duty, you'll have to correct me on that one, but um, dealing with the loss of a colleague, um, talking about 1998 when you were with Peter Forsyth and... I think from memory, you'll have to recall the story for me, but I think you've intercepted somebody who was trying to sell drugs and that event turned south pretty quickly. Are you able to talk us through that? Because it would have been an incredibly difficult situation to get through.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, that one still, um, as, you'd, as you'd expect, lives, lives with me um, to the, this very day. The um, I suppose taking back to when I graduated, we graduated on Friday the 13th, um, And and I actually said to someone when we were on a program, and it's like, is it just me, or is this a really bad day to graduate? Like, um, you know, if you if you would go by that superstitious date. Anyway, two, exactly, exactly two two weeks later, you know, Friday to the to the um, two Fridays later, I was laying in the gutter, bleeding to death, um, and I had my colleague laying on top of me who'd who'd, um, who'd passed away from his injury. So. You know, um, if I suppose that answered my own question about, um, you know, the Friday to the 13th. So basically we'd finished a shift, um, you know, because we we're doing sort of, um, there's a lot of swing shifts, as you know. Um, we were doing a 9 till 9, so 9am 9 till 9pm. Um, and we actually picked Peter Forsyth up and dropped him at the airport to do a prisoner escort during the day. Um, it's the first time we'd sort of, I'd spent, you know, Time having a good conversation with him, and he was really uh, excited by the fact that I was over at his station, um, being I suppose my size, and oh, good! It's good to get a you know another big fella in here because obviously it's quite helpful in law enforcement at times. Mm. It's not essential, yeah. as we know. It's everyone's got their positions in the in what in what they what they bring to the table. But anyway, um, so he was like, "Hey, you know, uh, I, when I get back, are you guys keen? I'd love to catch up for a beer." And I was like, you know, I'm only in my mid twenties, so it's perfect. Yes, we were, and we, so we caught up with him. We actually picked him up, met him at his house um, at Ultimo, which is not that far from you know my station. I'm still in, I'm still wearing my uniform. I'm just wearing a shirt over the top of my, my uniform to go and have a beer, as we all did in those days. Um, and met his wife. He had, uh, uh, I think, Brody would have been less than she was probably about ten months old. And, and Mitch would have been about 18 months old, his kids. And then went up to his local, which is, you know, literally three 400 metres away. Had a few beers. Um, and on the way um, back to his place, to literally call it a night, uh, probably at 11.30 at night, we were approached and someone tried to sell us ecstasy, um, which is quite incredible considering what I was wearing and, you know, it was clearly in uniform um you know to cut to to summarize that that um interaction um you know peter and brian neville um brian's actually my was my um you know field training officer at the time um you know I, they took the lead you know i'm only this brand new um you know straight out of the academy basically so um i knew my place and that's to stand and 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 Assist where required and keep your mouth shut until someone asks you for, <laughs> to, for from assistance. Um, yeah. You know, this, the, the offender um, was pretty compliant um, in terms of, it, like, he wasn't playing up, but he, he wasn't exactly doing, um, you know, he, he, he was asked for ID and a few other bits and pieces, uh, and he was just being slow about it. We had him in this, um, if you can imagine, a fire exit out of a community centre um, this is right on the edge. It's, par- it's basically part of, you know, um, Sydney CBD. Um, and he was on his haunches and there was like a cutout in the the building. So he was actually contained within this, like, a metre deep by two metres wide. Yeah. You know, this mm. these, um, exit area. Um, and he was on his haunches and he was going through his... Um, he had like a... I don't know what you call them in the UK. Like a bum bag, we used to call them in Australia. Yeah. You know, there. Yeah. Anyway, so he was taking too long. I mean, we got him to stand up. What he'd been doing, what was taking him, he was actually prepping the buck knife that he had in his, um, you know, bum bag. So um, when he stood up, he's going to push off the the wall, off the doors. Um, he goes, basically, I think his words were like, um, you know, sorry to swear, but um, he's, fuck this, I'm out of here. And he, and he steps, moves forward. Um, the three of us. I, I just sort of moved forward and and I'm basically um, pushing back against the door. Um, of course, we weren't letting him go anywhere. You know, it's, he's being detained. Um, and at that point, he sort of struggled a bit. And I got. It felt like I'd been punched twice. And and I remember thinking to myself, like in that in that in context in that uh, in that instant, going, how pathetic it, those punches were. You know, in terms of. Um, it didn't didn't seem to do anything um obviously for me with the way i remember it it, it, it's i can remember this in microseconds, as you would imagine as a victim of crime but um you know obviously it, it happened quite quickly um you know brian neville um i think was the only one that actually saw that he was armed with a knife and um because of the way we were positioned um and called Knife um, and and the interaction sort of um, he, he, he was out of that he wasn't contained in that um, alcove sort of thing at that point but as soon as Brian sort of said um, Knife it was like the my it's like my body knew something had happened to it but my mind hadn't caught up yet and then and then you know that verbiage of Knife made, that connection was made and um, you know Brian he's uh, his, his, the offenders, um, you know, having sort of a bit of a face off with Brian, and and then they, there was a foot pursuit. So he's off, and and Brian's running. I, at that point, my body and I suppose your your shock mechanism, you know, like your body knows before your brain does, and then once your brain does, it adds another layer of um, you know stress and duress because you now you got you're consciously aware of what's happened.
0: Two police officers, it is reported, have been
1: stabbed. And I look down. <laughs> and Pulled my shirt up and I and I literally was just spraying blood um, out of my stomach area. Um, and I, yeah, so it's like, um, i, I remember putting my hand on that wound and just instantly thinking, Holy, f-, you know, that's it. I'm, 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 I'm literally going to die right here, right now, in this streak, just because I, the amount of blood that was, um, that I, that I was losing was pretty dramatic. Um, at that point um peter has you know couldn't care less about the offender he's seen what he's seen he when i've lifted my shirt he's seen what's going on at the same time so he's like fuck man at the top of his voice yelling out because there is a bit of um there are some um residents you know um, straight across the road so he's yelling out yelling out and lights were turning on and it was clear some people had sort of um been made aware that it was a serious incident had occurred um, he sort of laid me down I was half in the gutter um, half on this footpath um, and he's s- sort of um, straddling you know to my sort of my right hand side I suppose um, and he goes k- k- show me show me the wound so I took my hand off and it obviously did because there was an arterial bleed involved um, you know it's thrown everywhere and he's like oh fuck don't take your hand off that again And then I was like, yeah, (laughs) no dramas. Um, And then he basically just said, listen, you're going to be okay, mate. Um, Just, you know, calm down. You're going to be good. And then literally at the completion of that sentence, collapsed on top of me. And it was like, um, it was quite surreal, mate. I, I actually thought that he'd fainted because there was no... You know, during the interaction, and, you know, once I'd realised that I'd been um, stabbed, and I'd actually been stabbed twice. Once in above my heart, but it it um, it split my rib and and stopped the blade from going any further. So I went about halfway through my rib, um, directly above my heart. Um, so I can thank my rib cage for doing what it was, gene- you know, designed for. Um, but he he had no injuries, was talking fine. Meanwhile, he'd been stabbed in the heart. So it was one entry wound into his chest and the knife had come partially out of that wound and then back in again. So there was two stab wounds in his heart um, in that single external um, wound cavity. Um, you know, so Can you describe
0: shi- for us just that this type of, you call it a buck knife. For those of people that might not be familiar with what that is, is that, is that a large blade? Is it like a short, what is that
1: the knife so, he's using? it's a, so it's a you you'd see those everyday carry sort of knives it's a folding knife um the blade probably i think was about 130 millimeters long so it's just it's a decent blade and it's and it's a i suppose you could refer to as a hunting skinning knife um you know there was quite a vicious blade on it as well so um it's pretty much designed for doing what it did unfortunately but um yeah so um that, I suppose, my injuries. You know, Pete. has got t- two incisions in his heart, and which is clearly going to be fatal. It's amazing that he was able to do what he did for probably the fifteen to twenty seconds um, before he expo- like before he passed out and um, and died on top of me, basically. So, um, whereas my wound, what, the rib caught the one over my heart, but the the wound that went in my abdomen went through my stomach an artery that feeds the stomach through my liver and a perforation in the bowel so um not the best um scenario and i end up losing 4.9 liters of blood as a result of that wound which um you know some of the australian special forces combat medics have actually um, spoken about on a few podcasts so they just scratched their head as to how i survived it um because there's one thing, losing five litres of blood, but it's incredibly hard to put it back into your body. Um, you know, you know, even even if you're around a corner from a hospital. So, uh, yeah. So, um, very, uh, you know, pretty much worst case scenario for anyone, any day of the week. But 14 days out of the police academy, um, it was um, it was just unbelievable, mate. Really. Um,
0: so, so because so, I, I think I got it wrong. I think I said it was a year. So obviously, fourteen days out of the police academy, you're faced with this incredibly traumatic and difficult situation. You've got a colleague that's passed out, lying on top of you, tragically passing away in front of you, um, from horrific injuries. Yeah. It does. Is it? Is it the, is it the same? we you know, we've all hit that urgent backup button. We've all called for it. And it always feels like it always feels like ten, fifteen minutes before the troops and the cavalry arrive. To support you how long was it before peter screaming for help and, and asking residents to call Ambos and police etc that the cavalry came and you had some support
1: yeah i mean we're very lucky um the the incident sort of occurred only about oh, probably two and a half three kilometers away from pretty much one of the biggest police stations in the cbd in sydney um city city of central um you know so the response from them was like, uh, and because it's police have been stabbed, you know, the, the level of commitment <laughs> um, police have to getting to those officers is quite substantial, right? Um, pretty much the only reason I'm here today is because there were two paramedic trucks that weren't in that e- meant to be in that area. One's from down around Maroubra, which is, you know, probably 20 minutes drive away. And another one from um, Ride area, which is about the same they were literally a minute away catching up for a coffee at that late night coffee because they one of the people in each of those trucks had been deployed overseas um, in a military context so if th- that chance catch up they did p- basically saved my life it wasn't enough for Pete but um, so they literally the call came out and they're going that's just around the corner and then next thing you know they're 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 there um, you know, it probably would have been, you know, three to five minutes, you know, I, I couldn't really tell you accurately how long it was, but um, to be honest with you, um, I was so, um, you know, Peter had sort of been dragged off me by my by Brian, uh, and Brian was doing CPR at, 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 a, at a point once he'd realised that um, no pulse and that he actually had been stabbed. Um, I was still a little bit confused as to what was going on and I was actually thinking that he may have had a heart attack, you know, because without any of the external bleeding or or visible injury, it was very hard for me to determine what had happened to Pete, even though obviously, you know, clearly we'd, I'd just been stabbed so I don't know why my brain wasn't thinking he had been. Um, and I, I, Pete was off. It sounds really selfish, but Pete was getting looked after by Brian and I was by myself. And I was like, I just went into my own world of, of um, trying to remain calm to the point that when members of the public were coming up and trying to reassure me, I was literally telling them where to go because they were, they were interfering with my um, process of remaining calm. And if I had to talk to someone, it sort of took me out of the trance I was putting myself in Um, yeah, can I, can I just, I I, I must bring up a point that goes into that where I was trying to remain calm. The night before I was at home and I was reading a book of, of, um, of a undercover police officer who I'm really good friends with, um, to the, to this day, um, Mick Drury, and he was involved in some pretty, um, very well-known policing, um, um, Notoriety around these um, his career is is substantial. Back in the day, um, there was a lot of there was there was a few um, you know there was a lot of police corruption around a certain couple of individuals. Um, uh, one of which is doing life in jail for murder. Um, you know uh, Roger Rogerson and, and that, that crew. Um, there's actually a telly series out, Blue Murder, which covers that whole um, really interesting. Period of time in in policing, um, not one everyone's proud of. But so Mick Drew is this awesome undercover cop, um, you know, um, like one of the one of one of the best um, undercover police officers of all time. He was shot as a result of some of the interactions, um, you know, with the criminals, the criminal underworld, and their those criminal underworlds inter- interactions with these some of these corrupt cops. He was shot through his kitchen window, in in a proper hit, gone wrong. Um, so twice with a three-five-seven through his kitchen window, um, and I was re- I was reading his book, and it got to the chapter where he got shot. And you know, I was I thought, should I read this, you know, because it was late, or should I just pick it up the next day? So in the end, I couldn't help myself, and I read that chapter. In that chapter, once he'd been shot, and he's laying on his on his kitchen floor you know you can imagine how grievously injured um he, and he's thinking to himself the only thing i can do because i've got absolutely no idea what to do from a medical care point of view is just i'm just going to remain as calm as i possibly can to limit the amount of bleeding and so you know that 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 chapter probably saved my life when i talked to my um my surgeon specialist you know um over the next few months because um he was saying like you lost 5 liters but if you weren't doing what you were doing in terms of calming yourself like you wouldn't have taken much more blood loss and you are you like literally they were taking my um you know my last rights and you know the police the police at the scene initially go get some information out of him because he is not going to survive um and um you know, so God, it's, it's, it's so, so many, but you know, these funny little moments, you know, some, you know, people say, oh, their life flashed before their eyes when something colossal has occurred. Mm. I, I think that's true from the point of view where your body and your brain is trying to search like a hard drive for a solution to the problem you've just encountered. And, and, and my so my brain was cycling through and bang, it's like, okay, this is the only thing you got. Um, and I'd read it the night before, um, you know, and so that was why I was sort of really putting a lot of effort into re- trying to remain calm. Um, even though a couple of times I looked to my left and I could see my blood um, had travelled down the pathway and was going over the gutter into the gutter, and I <laughs> I looked at that, and went, you know, that sort of when you see your blood flowing down the street, you know, you're, you're you know, you're. I don't know, I can, I can actually feel how terrifying it was at the time, even still to this day. Um, it's very hard to explain to people unless you've sort of had a true life and death experience. Um, it's just horrific, because you're just going, oh my God, I am absolutely going to die any minute. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm, not, I'm, I'm laughing out of more anxiety at the moment than, than uh, yeah. It's it's it truly was horrific.
0: So, so just I suppose reflecting on the the kind of the moments after that and being taken to hospital and starting to receive treatment, you know, um, what was what, what is was there an, was there a point where you kind of because I assume you losing as much blood as you were. There's a period there where you're potentially losing in and out of consciousness in terms of what you're able to you know what you're able to take in from what's going on externally to you whether it's colleagues talking to you whether it's paramedics asking you questions was there a kind of was there a phased out
1: period? No I was you know I, um, it's very hard for me to decide whether I would have preferred to have been unconscious for the whole thing or lived through it like I did because you know as you know um, there's there is silver linings to you know going through tough times and coming out the other side you you know it's how you develop as a human of course no one wants to go through that you know but um i was 100 percent just like crazily aware of everything that was going on and at no point went close to even having any sort of unconscious moment i could feel that i was not well um and i, I spent a lot of time when the because you know the the emergency teams that are working on you are, are working quite frantically and there's, there's you got quite a lot of people doing quite a lot of tasks um, and I, a lot of the time if they weren't talking to me direct, I was staring at the, um, the monitor which was doing all your vitals and willing my heart rate and blood pressure to sort of equalise a bit, you know, so if I looked away and then look back; it would spike. So I, I would—I I was using that as sort of a, like a. Um, no, and no one trained me to do it. I was just like—I suppose that was the only thing I could look at and the only thing I could do, t- to try and help myself. Um, so yeah, and you know what it's like—the the medical professionals are amazing, and I'm only here because of their their efforts. But they. they they know when something's like ultra serious and so you cannot help but sort of notice that they were stressed and that they were you know so a few times i'd ask people hey am i, am I going to be okay like and i want that i want the truth and of course everyone always just oh, you're going to be fine you're going to be fine so um it was just a, it was just pure um terrifying um in a moment in history. Um, I was I was completely awake right up until I was on this operating table. And I remember my surgeon saying he goes and uh, here's another thing too, you know, the surgeon that worked on me is the most experienced surgeon in that type of category in New South Wales at the time. He was at the hospital delivering training to all the surgeons on new techniques. And then so it, well, I've come in, Pete's Pete's Passed away unfortunately, and he goes. I'll take um, this officer, and he, he's now my patient. So, you know, I had this incredibly gifted surgeon. A lot of a lot of things come together for me to be having this conversation with you. Um, and but he said um, in his whole surgical career, he's never had someone on the table say, um, "Please don't fuck this up," which is what I'd said to <laughs> oh, Jason. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was like, well, I. Well, I was lying on that table and I was like, I'd, my brain had remembered some, um, you know, one of the current affairs programs talking about, um, you know, things gone wrong in the theatres like the week before. and Yeah, so he, he he goes, yeah, that was pretty unique. No one's ever said that to me before. And then we look at this six foot five dude on the table, we better get this right, so.
0: So, you know, post-op and recovery must be a long period for you. When was the difficult and challenging conversation that you had had with colleagues who told you that Peter had passed away as a result of his injuries?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a huge guilt complex here because, yeah, even when back at the scene when when Brian's sort of working on Pete, um, you're 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 under you're in so much trouble physically, um, medically, that you. It's, it's not that you're being selfish and you're only thinking about yourself. You really have no capacity to do anything except worry about yourself at that point. You know, so um, I always go back and think, fuck, I was, I was so busy worrying about myself and next to me, um, I knew something colossally wrong, but, you know, I knew Pete was getting helped and it was like, um... so the next day, there's another layer of guilt. You know, I got the police commissioner at the time, who's one of, actually, um, he, he originated from the UK, Peter Ryan. Um, I don't know if you remember him Um, so he was our police commissioner he you know I woke up and he's basically the end of my bed and I had this this feeling of sheer elation Oh man I just woke up I'm still here he woke up yeah Yeah. so Mm -hmm. it was like the most elated feeling in the history of mankind followed a short period later by the news that um, because I'd asked so many times and no one would tell me and then and then and then it, um i think even peter it might have been peter ryan that sort of said listen you know unfortunately you know peter um passed away last night and you know the the gravity of that sort of started to sink in and then you know f- while the, the that period while I was in hospital especially i just felt like horrible because it was like um you've got that survivor's guilt. Um, where you're related you're to be there, but at the same time, you know that wasn't the same outcome for that for your offsider, So um, it was that was really tough to do with for a long time, actually. Yeah, not not easy.
0: So Brian, because when this all sort of kicked off really quickly, Brian had engaged in this foot chase and had gone after. Um, Kern who was responsible for these horrific injuries yeah. inflicted on both you and Peter had he given up that foot chase to return to support you guys had he lost this
1: this this guy and, and come back yeah he um, so he he gave up on the foot pursuit because he he sort of had a bit of a swivel on you know they'd run down to an intersection and then when as they turn right he's looked back and saw both of us laying in the gutter and went right you know that's my main. Mm. They're now my that's main priority. Yeah, my priority. Yeah. So, um, mm. and as we all know, um, <laughs> if you're running through a CBD um, in a major city, it's like he, there's the, there's always going to be some evidentiary trail, whether it's through cameras. So his um, priority was to come back and see. You know, because c- I, I think he was unaware that we'd actually been physically uh, stabbed when he did when he was uh, initially pursuing Murray. Uh, the offender, um, yeah. So he came back, and obviously he was met with a pretty horrific scene. Um, of Both of us down, and pretty much one, you know, Pete. Who's and he was very close with Pete too. So you know, he's got his one of his best mates, like literally dead in his arms. Um, it's it's a very. I always feel that maybe Brian was the most traumatically affected by this um, because, you know. If you know what it's like, if you're at a scene and you weren't one of the injured officers, you don't seem to get the same amount of, um, I don't know, interest as what the the officers who actually had a physical injury do get. But you're, you know, as we all know, you know, he would have been just like, I can't even imagine what he was going through. To be honest,
0: it's almost like this different type of feelings you're going through in terms of, I suppose. I suppose one could describe as sort of the pressure of having to try and prioritise what's important now and, and how can I help these guys and, you know, he's got you struggling, he's got Peter who's collapsed, you know, he's, he wants to get back up there, he's wanting to get support there. All these things you're trying to do to try and have a positive impact on people's lives and equally you can see things not going well, it must be an incredibly difficult situation to deal with, which inevit- inevitably you have this elation from waking up, the commissioner of police is at the end of your bed, he delivers this really troubling and sad news that Peter succumbed to his his injuries. Yep. What's the, you know, before we came on air, you told this sort of, there are always, there's got to be sort of um, moments reflect back on sort of funny anecdotal stories to get you through these really difficult times. You yep. sort of recalled this story off air of a of a mate coming in to see you because you hadn't eaten for days. You know, here you, you are, this big giant of a chap who hasn't eaten for days because you're waiting for your body to slowly recover and one of your mates turns up eating a pizza at the foot of the bed in the middle of the night tell us through that because those are sort of stories that kind of get you through these difficult times
1: yeah so because you can imagine the amount of media coverage for something like this um, you know you've got two police down one's been murdered um, and it wasn't that long after a, a, um, another police officer had been brutally stabbed to death about six to eight months before, um, yeah, David Cardi. Um, so you know, there was a lot of media attention. So I was sort of hidden away in the in the hospitals, um, and I had a, there was a lot of cops doing whatever they could to to try and find me in the hospital. So they could come up because they just want to come up and get like tell you oh, we're glad you're alive, and you know they all knew I was this brand new probie in in the cops. So. It was amazing that whole organisation was trying their utmost to come and see you, to tell you that they, you know, to give you support. It really is, it, makes, it gives me tingles even to talking about it to this day. That level There's of... It's a blue family. That blue family. It's, it's it's an absolute, one of those pillar moments in my life when I realised what policing really meant. Anyway, and my, my brother obviously was... In and out um, all the time, make sure I was looked after. But as you were saying, Glenn McAnally was his name. Um, and I woke up at about one o'clock in the morning and um, I, I couldn't eat anything because of the some of the injuries. Um, and yeah, I wake up at one o'clock and I look down and he's I could smell the pizza straight away. And it's like, what? And then, you know, he's there <laughs> chairing down and he's, he's, he's pretty, pretty reasonably intoxicated by this point. He'd been in town I'm going to go and see Jace. Um, yeah, he was um, three months more senior to me in the cops, so he's only pretty brand new as well. But um, and I was like, "How did you even get in here?" And he goes, "I have my ways." And you know, he's eating his pizza. I said, "Dude, did you realize I haven't had any food for like a week?" You know, and I'm like, "You're eating pizza in my room?" And he goes, "Yeah, but you've got a morphine drip, so you're you're good to go." Um, and we had a bit of a laugh and um and he goes and he, he basically come up and he pressed my button on the morphine and oh, that was the last thing i remember i wake up the next morning so he goes oh, i want to see how long it takes for you to pass out and i was like i was like you know it's one of those amusing things you know with cops visiting <laughs> other cops in the hospital but uh pushing buttons yeah yeah the um uh, yeah, unfortunately as we were you and i were discussing um 12 months later, um, he was, um, it was probably about 18 months later, actually, um, he was in higher patrol at Maroubra, um, responding to armed robbery, and um, the, 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 the armed robbery su- suspects were at one end of the street, he was at the other, and he came around, and they fired about five or six shots at Glen, one of which went through his Um, police windscreen hit him directly in the head, um, so, you know, 18 months later I found myself leaning over him in in his hospital bed, but unfortunately I wasn't able to repeat the pizza, um, activity, um, it was more a case of saying goodbye to him because, um, it, it was clear he was not going to survive his, um, his injury, so, you know, um, it's so. There's so many parallels in in law enforcement, isn't there? You know, like in terms of, you know, you know, one minute he's in there having a pizza and um, being an asshole, you know, in that in that funny context, and you know, a little little less than two years later, he's in a pretty much similar scenario. So,
0: how soon after your incident was um, Murray Hearn arrested and found?
1: So. You're talking Friday night, um, late Friday night. The incident occurred, and he was um, arrested by the Tuesday night, following Tuesday. So you know, so f- say four days.
0: And, and going through that whole inevitable court process, and and um, was there? A f- what were the feelings that you're going through when when all that was going on was uh, naturally feelings. Of anger and sadness, in terms of both the loss of a, a colleague and a friend, but equally the anger of this individual that's done this to you and to your colleague and friend. How you how do you manage that whole process to the point that he gets sentenced for the for for, for, for the serious crimes that he
1: committed? You know, um, I was talking to my brother and my pop, and you know, people that I sort of look up to, leading up into that point where you had to give evidence. And you've got to keep in mind too, even even like um, 18 months later or whatever, um, I'm still only a junior cop, you know, especially, you know, giving, giving evidence and um, you, you, it takes a while to cut your teeth in law enforcement where you're like a, a really high-end operator in, in especially in the evidentiary side of things. Um, but I found it really, um, you know, I thought to myself, A, I'm not going to give the offender the slightest bit of satisfaction and i just want him to see strength so you know i'm not going to um as much as i found the whole thing horrifyingly daunting especially sort of recanning what happened there was a huge stress on me too to not make any erroneous um evidentiary sort of act, um you know uh, provision where um it, it it caused any issue for the prosecution so you know, because I just you w- just wanted to be here's my opportunity to give really good evidence, and so that was my approach. I, I was I was actually um, like stoic from the point of view. I just felt I had to be for Pete, and I I think I drew off that strength when I one, once I given evidence, um, which is quite substantial amount, of, you know, and it was it, w- it wasn't easy, but uh, at the same time I was watching him squirm. In where you know where he was sitting, the offender, and and that empowered me a a little bit as well. But I had a very senior, really tough, well known police investigator. Like he's one of the bosses in City of Central on the night of the stabbing as well. And I'm talking a hard, intelligent cop who was really well revered. He he came up to me and pulled me aside, and he was and he said to me, "I just want to tell you." that that evidence you gave, you know, from how junior you are and what has happened to you, and he couldn't even finish the sentence, and he um, teared up telling me how proud he was. Um, And I sort of, that broke me a little bit at the time, and just because of the sheer, I knew this guy's reputation and how much of a complete, you know, champion he was. But, um, yeah, I I was really proud, actually, because at the end of the day... um, you can be acknowledged for some of the, you know, your, the evidence you give by whoever, but from your peers of that, um, of his quality, you know, I, I really felt proud, and I and I and it sort of allayed a lot of fears too, because you don't get too much feedback from prosecution. Hey, Jace, you know, we give you a, you did really well. They they probably say that to everyone, so you're sort of trying to figure out whether um, they were like. Um, like authentically happy with the evidence I'd given. But um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. so I suppose cutting it, you know, summarising, I, I went in there with a really empowered position um, and I thought I just put all my energy into looking and coming across strong and getting a really succinct picture of what had occurred out for the jury and, um, you know, the judge to sort of evaluate
0: A bit of a a difficult question here, I I probably asked a couple already, is do you believe in the power of time and forgiveness in terms of Murray Hearn has now been released since committing those crimes? Um, If if he was ever wanting to apologise to you face-to-face for his actions many, many years ago, would you accept them, or is it something that you will never, ever forgive him for?
1: Yeah, I mean, probably five or six years after the event, we were... Um, approached by corrections. You know, I think it might have been the psychology. You know, I can't remember. It was someone in the the corrections system saying that he would like to to apologise. So, you know, would you be willing to come out to the jail? Um, And so, and I go, no, I've got no interest in that at all because, you know, whilst they're incarcerated, you know, the only reason they were doing that is for parole, um, you know, you know, trying to improve their chance of parole over, over the time. So it's like going, um, no, I've got no interest. I don't even want to hear his reasoning behind it. It's a done, you know, am I sitting here um, plotting to um, get revenge? No. But at, the, at that time, I'm not going to alleviate any of his supposed trauma by, uh, by accepting an apology. How can I accept an apology on someone who's no, no, no longer here and you know the same with um, Pete's wife Jackie and their kids it's like so the answer was at that point was no um if I like I don't really think of him at all I don't I don't dwell on it he's out of jail now as you know um so I don't I don't sit here and and think of him and or be concerned about him you know um he was he was pretty young it's it was a you know, probably a little bit of a stupid spur of the moment thing, rather than overly calculated. Um, I think if if someone had ambushed us deliberately and calculated and planned this over a period of time beforehand, that would have a very different um, effect on how I feel today. But um, you know, you know, so yeah. I mean, I, I honestly don't think of him. If if I if I had the unfortunate occurrence of like physically bumping into him and um, he said, hey, I I know who you are and I just want to say this and I'd say, "Um, that's noted, mate. Um, You know, I wouldn't carry on, it would be but I don't think I'd, I I don't think I would accept it. I just think I'd say, I acknowledge your apology, mate, um, and just continue to, you know, be in the community, do the right thing, that's, you can face your judgment in whatever capacity life and karma and religion whatever you want to look at it um you know judges him down the track so
0: you know I, i i talk about often in the podcast um you know the the skill of resilience and being able to um understand that fight or flight um response to any sort of critical stress incident and And how people manage those in their first few years of policing, because we never know really how we're going to respond to sudden death, to incidents of trauma, to conflict. All those skill sets really sort of evolve over the first really five years of your career, really, in general duties policing. You know, arguably, you've probably had one of the most traumatic starts to any sort of policing career in terms of losing a couple of colleagues within the first few years, You know, good friends and people that you'd worked with. So, you know, if you look back at the first five years of your career in terms of the exposure you'd had had it made you a far more resilient person or was you know these were still very difficult moments to get through but you were stronger nonetheless for going through them and and probably the strongest you could ever be in terms of the resilience you'd shown to get through the other side of them
1: yeah yeah i um because i i I suppose one of the one of the you know I, 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 i don't like using the term but it's the silver linings to um you know, being exposed to that trauma was very early intervention in the police with um, psychiatrists, you know, so obviously, you know, as as you were recovering physically um, from the injuries, you know, I'm off seeing um, like a fantastic psychiatrist actually. Um, and he, um, yeah, he was, so he, as much as I I didn't really gravitate. I'd never been exposed to anyone in the psychology or psych- psychiatric world ever in my life, um, and you know, to so to, that was quite an experience. And I was definitely a fish out of water. I never felt comfortable in there um, initially. Um, and he, he he would be saying, "Listen, you're you're, you're um, you've had a critical stress incident, and you now have got critical stress um, syndrome," and which is pretty much the early days um you know terminology for PTSD. You're you know, and a lot of my, you know, um I suppose symptoms outside of um day to day were obviously giving him that um make so he could make that appraisal. Um so and I I never accepted it. I go, no, there's nothing wrong with me. I, I'm just obviously still getting over the, the incident and you know um the Inability to sort of deal with the fact that I couldn't have done more to help Pete, or maybe we'd, you know, you do the what ifs a fair bit in early days. Um, But um, yeah, I, I suppose during that period, whether I, uh, you acknowledge it years later, he actually gave me so many tools on how to be a better human, um, not just from a law enforcement perspective, but in general, and how to you know, um, all these different strategies and, you know, you recognize this, you need to do this. If this starts happening, you know, recognize it, seek help if you need to, Jace, come and see me, or, you know, go down these lines. Um, It gave me some really um, organic sort of mechanisms as well, realistically, you know, because the amount of trauma I've seen in the 20 years after that, some of that, you know, I, I often scratch my head going, it's, you know as, as you know it's horrific what you what you see in law enforcement but um, yeah, I, I definitely utilized those tools unknowingly for a few years and then and then knowingly once I obviously become a little bit more um, experienced in understanding um, those especially those the mindset side of things so um, I, I was actually lucky and it's and it's one of the things I talk about to a lot of people these days is Why aren't we doing that like day one at the academy? You know, giving people these tools that because they're inevitably going to see trauma, they're inevitably going to, um, you know, be exposed. Some of them are going to actually, unfortunately, have um, interactions like I did, um, you know, um, and be have some critical injuries themselves. And, um, yeah, I just think, um, yeah, the, the the more we can do at the very beginning um and we don't want to traumatize people um, prior to them seeing trauma but they definitely need to understand and have access to the tools that i did so yeah hopefully i didn't um spend too much time waffling on with that answer
0: no 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 it's perfect and i totally agree with you it's it's one of the most important skill sets i think a police officer can have that in communication because you Get yourself both in and out of trouble with the ability to communicate with some of the people you come across. The other biggest skill is how to cope with some of the stresses that policing is going to inflict upon you, both emotionally and physically. I think that the most important skill sets are out there. Everything else kind of falls into place if I think you've got those two key things around you to support you. You're listening to part one of my chat with retired New South Wales police officer Jason Semple. In part two, Jason talks us through the incredible challenges he faced whilst working overseas in both an operational capacity as a specialist firearms officer and in a
1: unique training role both in Iraq and the UAE in the Middle East. There was constant, um, you know, intelligence and suicide bomber threats, you know, and you could see the camp escalate when they thought they were going to have someone um, come in and detonate themselves in in the DFAT. So that threat was always there
0: next on protect and serve protect and serve is a mash pumpkin production hosted by oliver lawrence research and questions by oliver lawrence and robert Win Stanley. produced edited and sound designed by jack lawrence